If you're using one of our black pew Bibles that are around your chair, you can find the, this chapter on page 828. But Matthew chapter 22 is where we will be. We'll probably be here for the next couple of weeks. But we're going to look today specifically at verses 23 to verse 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children left, his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I'd like to begin with a question this morning. Have you thought much about heaven lately? Maybe heaven as as it may be right now, if you were to die tomorrow and you were to go to heaven, have you considered what that would be like? But then also what we may refer to as the eternal state, what it will one day always be like when the whole church is gathered uh, in heaven, the the church from every age, and we're together there with the Lord, uh, worshiping Him for all of eternity. Have you even considered that much about heaven? You, You can scan different religions and different groups who have their own opinions or thoughts about what heaven is, or maybe what the afterlife is. Different religious groups may say, well, there's uh, some sort of paradise, they may call it, or a moksha, or a nirvana. That could be some sort of state of mind for all of eternity, where they're forever at peace, or maybe some sort of actual place, as we would say, that when we die, our bodies actually do go, and forever they are with the Lord. But even when we consider the afterlife and different cultures that that, that have considered this, of course, throughout the thousands of years of world history that we have. You can look at different cultures, like even Egypt, right? Think of the Egyptians, and what did they do? They would take a body, and they would mummify it, right? So we would have mummies, and they would preserve the bodies to preserve that person for the afterlife, leave all trinkets around the pyramids and so forth, so that person had things for the afterlife. Or I heard of Native American tribes who, uh, when somebody died, they would bury a dog with it, so in the afterlife, the dog could lead them on through the afterlife. But there are so many different concepts about the afterlife or, or, or heaven or, or thoughts of what it will actually be like. But what will it be like, I wonder? One thing that we can know for sure, and we do know as Christians, is that a day will come, and this is central to Christian doctrine, a day will come when there will be a mass resurrection from the dead. However, even during Jesus' time, there was a group of people who did not believe 
in resurrections, even just even Jesus being raised from the dead. They wouldn't have believed that that would be possible. But also, they did not believe in some sort of final resurrection, where there would be a whole bunch of body that, bodies that would actually raise out of the ground. And our text tells us in verse 23 that this group is known as the Sadducees. Now, I want you to remember that name. It's, it's in contrast. These men are in contrast to even the Pharisees that we've seen or the scribes that we've seen. These Sadducees, they were a small group. However, they were a really wealthy group. So even 2,000 years ago, this was a powerful, small group of people who had a lot of sway with the people as a result of their own wealth. Now, these Sadducees, opposed to, again, even the Pharisees, they emphasized the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or excuse me, that's the, that's the New Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament. The Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they emphasized those first five books of the Bible and really read into the rest of the scriptures what they found within the Pentateuch. And this left them with not believing in the resurrection and also left them, as we see in other scriptures, they did not even believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. So the question that these men come to Jesus asking is concerning an Old Testament law called leveret marriage. It's concerning leveret marriage. So don't get thrown off by that word leveret. It's just a simple word designating about a brother. But leveret marriage is what they come and ask Jesus about. And so the situation, as we read there between verses 23 and 28, was this. There was a woman who married a man. Okay? Like this happened millions of times in, in history. Right? Woman marries a man. This man died. So the responsibility then was for his brother to step up and to now marry the woman because the first couple didn't have any children. So she marries the first husband. They don't have any children. He dies. She marries the second husband. They don't have any children. Dies. There's another brother that steps in and says, okay, I'll marry you and I'll have children for the sake of my brothers. The third brother ends up dying all the way down to seven brothers. So you ever heard of the movie Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Well, there's one bride for seven brothers, okay? So this is the the question that they come asking Jesus about. And the whole bottom line question is this. One day in the resurrection, the resurrection that we don't believe in, by the way. One day in the resurrection, Jesus, that you believe in, to whom does this woman belong? She's had seven different husbands. They were all brothers. She married all of them, didn't have any children with them, but they all had her. They were all her husband at one point. So to whom does this woman belong? Whose wife is she? But look how Jesus responds to them in verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Now that's, that's an interesting way to begin a response. You are wrong. The King King James Version says it really nicely. You err. You are wrong, he says. But this is the way to handle false teachers. This is the the way to handle somebody who, who does not properly believe or teach God's truth as it should be teach. Even those who are misguided. They may say, well, I, I, just, I just don't think that the Bible can tell me how to live. There are certain parts of the Bible that, frankly, I, I just can't get by. I can't believe in those kinds of things. Friends, if that, if that is you, you're wrong. 
And Jesus is very clear with these Sadducees. He begins by telling them that they are wrong. So it's a very Christ-like thing to do at times to confront somebody in that kind of a way. You are wrong. But he goes on to tell them why they're wrong. You see, it's never a good thing to just run around and tell everybody that they're wrong. It's a good thing, though, to say you're wrong. And now let me tell you why you are wrong. And so the first thing, look there again in verse 29. But Jesus said to them, you are wrong. Why? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So the first thing is you're wrong because you don't know the Bible. You don't know the scriptures. These, these men, these Sadducees, did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so within their question, they think that they have found a way to slip Jesus up. Okay, we don't really believe in this resurrection, but we're going to ask him a question in line with the resurrection anyway. We're going to do our best to slip him up, to kind of get him to mess up a little bit and look foolish. You remember last week when we looked at um, when the Pharisees, the, the, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they join forces together and they come to Jesus and they ask him a question specifically in relation to taxes. And they say, is it lawful to pay taxes unto Caesar? And what is Jesus' famous response? Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and then you render to God the things that are God's. So you need to give to Caesar whatever Caesar asks of you, so long as what he asks of you is in line with God. That you're not doing anything to cross over any line that God has, has, has drawn. And so just like last week where we saw those two groups of people come to Jesus to try to trip him up, you see the Sadducees now coming to Jesus to try and trim him up. But their whole problem here is centered partly on this. They don't know the Bible. They don't know it. And people scoff at God's word. They scoff at the idea that God's truth could be unchanged from the dawn of time and that it's echoing now and that it's going to echo for all eternity. That is something to scoff. That's something to jeer, to make fun of. But the problem is, they don't understand the Bible. They're like the Sadducees in this kind of way. They're they're asking bad questions because they have a bad understanding of God's word. And I think an application that we can even draw from this is, do you understand God's word? Would there be an occasion where Jesus could even come to us and say, you're wrong because you don't know the Bible. Do we read it? Do we study it? Do we meditate on it? Do we love to hear it taught? Do we love to hear the preaching of God's word, knowing that God is going to sanctify us through the truth that we receive from the word? What does the Bible say? Your word is truth, right? And that God is going to take that and he's going to wash his bride. He's going to wash his church with the truth. So, do you understand the Bible? Are we kind of like the Sadducees in this kind of a way, where we often are wrong in part because we do not know the Bible? Do you read it? Do you meditate? Do you study and pray upon God's Word? But then the second reason he gives is you're wrong because you don't know the Bible. But then the second thing he says is you don't know the power of God. Where do you see God's power? Have you seen God's power? You see it clearly demonstrated through creation, 
that God has created all things. He's created the mountains. He's created the waters. He's created all the land and sea and everything that is in it. So he has created all things. We see a clear demonstration of his power in his creation. But where else else do you see his great power? In resurrection. You see his power as you scan throughout the Bible. You see God's power so clearly in resurrection. You think back in the Old Testament where Elijah raised a widow's son. Where Elisha raised a boy. Where somebody who is dead fell on the bones of Elisha and he sprung back to life, resurrected. Or even in the New Testament where we read this morning, it goes on to tell of Lazarus. And Jesus goes and he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Of course, Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. Peter raises somebody named Dorcas back from the dead. Paul named, uh, brings somebody named Eutychus, Eutychus back from the dead. So throughout the whole Bible, you see very clearly the power of God in the concept of resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says this, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And so the Sadducees, part of their faulty understanding was in regard to the power of God because they did not accept resurrections, thereby denying God's power. Friends, Christianity is nothing without resurrection. If you do not believe in the resurrection from the dead, you cannot be a Christian. Because if you do not believe that the resurrections actually happen, then Christ himself has not been raised from the dead. If you do not believe Christ has been raised from the dead, you cannot be born again. Jesus himself says there in John 11, I am the resurrection. This is something that even defines Christ himself as one of the I am statements. The Sadducees, they claimed to be a a theological and biblical group of people. They would certainly think that God was powerful. But by missing the resurrection power, they missed a key point of God and his power. Friends, do you live in light of God's resurrection power? When you consider Romans chapter 6, it talks about how we we have died with Christ, but we have also been raised with Christ. Even when you consider your own baptism, where you were buried with Christ, And you were raised to walk in newness of life. And so you live now by a Christian in resurrection power. So the Sadducees denied the resurrection. But you know, I think sometimes we functionally deny the resurrection. So the Sadducees, they were ignorant of it. But I think a lot of times we're functionally ignorant of resurrection power and the truth of Christ that that he has been raised and we have been raised with him therefore we can walk in newness of life so all of these all of these battles that we face and all of the struggles that we have and when the temptation is pouring down on us we feel like we can do nothing but succumb to it because we're functionally ignorant of that resurrection power we may know it to be true but we don't have it in place within our Lives. This is so important for us as Christians to be living in the concept of resurrection. But I want to get a little deeper into Jesus' answer. You see there in verse 30, look there again. So he says in verse 29, you're wrong. And let me tell you why you're wrong. Because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. But then verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. This is not a common 
wedding text that you use. Like, oh yeah, you're getting married today, but someday you're not really going to be married. So enjoy it while it lasts. That's not how it works. But there could be some different responses to this. That is true. That in eternity, in heaven, there is going to be no marriage between you and your spouse. And I think there could be at least four responses to this. First, sadness, right? That, that you have the opportunity to be married to your spouse and maybe 20, 30, 50, 60 years or whatever God gives you, you enjoy that opportunity of being married. And so it makes us a little bit sad to think that we may not be married uh, for all of eternity because we've enjoyed it on earth. There could be another response. The idea that there is no marriage in heaven could make you happy. It could have the opposite response. Oh, 20 years, 30 years, it's been long enough. All right, eternity, I'm good, I'm good. So you could have a sad response, you could be happy, but there could also be a sadness for the joy lost. And maybe not having the opportunity to be married. And so you think, well, I, I would have really enjoyed to be married on earth. I would have really enjoyed to have children and all of those things. But then there could also be confusion. Why? I mean, if you think about it, you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis and this wonderful marriage between Adam and Eve, at least for a little while, before they ate the fruit and so on. And it's just this beautiful institution that we see clearly throughout the whole Bible and, of course, culminating even with Christ and the church. So we could be a little confused by it. Well, why? Why not have marriage? And you know, frankly, it's going to be because we won't need marriage in heaven. What are some of the things that you need marriage for, that we need marriage for? We look in 1 Corinthians, and we can see clearly that Paul says that marriage helps to protect two people from fornication. It protects against sexual immorality. So, if one is burning, they should marry somebody and have sexual relationships with inside that marriage. Another reason for marriage is procreation, right? So we, we get married, and we have children, and we hope to raise godly offspring, and so forth. And then Third, certainly for joy, that, that it's a wonderful thing. It's a joyful thing to partake in marriage together. So it could be a little bit confusing. Well, wh- why wouldn't there be heaven? God, why wouldn't there be marriage in heaven? God created marriage. It's a wonderful thing. But the truth is we simply will not need marriage. We won't need protection from immorality because we're going to be perfect. We won't need to, to procreate because in heaven there's, go- there's an innumerable number Revelation chapter 7, there's an innumerable number that is fixed. So we won't be procreating in heaven. And then also we won't even need the simple joy of marriage in heaven. Because we're going to be totally satisfied and thankful in God alone. So we will be like the angels in this way. We will be like the angels in the fact that we do not marry and we are not given in marriage. Angels do not marry, angels do not procreate and all the rest. So we will be like the angels in this way. And so this woman who had seven brothers for husbands, she won't be married to any of them. This is a hypothetical, I believe this is to, to be a hypothetical situation that the Sadducees bring to Jesus. But they won't, the woman will not be married to any of them, but what will be a reality is that between all seven of those men, she would not have any sin in between them. There would be, there would be uh, no death that would occur. She would have a perfect relationship with all seven of those men. And it's the same for us. That even now, that we together, when we're in glory, although we're, we're hampered by the concept of death, we're hampered by the concept of sin, and the sin that happens even within the body of Christ, 
It will not be so on that day. We will have perfect relationships with every single person, totally unhindered by any kind of sin, totally unhindered by any kind of death. I mean, won't that even be a beautiful thing? When you consider your relationship with your spouse now, I can guarantee that there's not one married couple here where they haven't sinned against each other. But for all of eternity, it will not be that way. It will not be that way. There will never be an argument. There will never be a shouting match. There will never be rude things said to one another. It'll be perfect, perfect in relationship as we are in heaven. But look with me at verse 31 and 32. Look at kind of how this closes. Jesus goes and uh, in his usual manner, he quotes some scripture. But verses 31 and 32. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Consider Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those those great patriarchs of Israel. They, in in Jesus' mind, they were somewhere at that moment. Right? He speaks of them as though God is still currently the God of Abraham. He's still the God of Isaac and Jacob. It's not, it's not mystic. It's not uh, played out in any other way but a reality. That God is, is currently their God. God did not create us just like He did not create those patriarchs, we call them. He did not create us to live for a little while, to die and to be annihilated. But if you belong to Him now as a believer, as a child of God right now, then you will always be with Him. He will always be your God as He is your God even now. And you will not truly die, but you will leave this earth and forever be with the God of the living. And you will be living, truly living again, unhampered, unhindered by death. But then the crowds react. The crowds react in astonishment. To Jesus' teaching here. I'm not so sure that means that the Sadducees rightly responded. But we see that the crowds themselves were astonished at the teaching. But look quickly at verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that, they had, that he had silenced the Sadducees. So really that was their response. They were not astonished. They were not marveled. They were simply silenced by the response of Christ. But what is your reaction What is your reaction to this passage? The way that this all plays out. The concept of resurrection. How how do you think about the resurrection? Even the concept of the whole marriage thing. Or the power of God. Or knowing the scriptures. Or the teaching that God is still currently the God of Abraham. And that God is his God. And Abraham belongs to God. And on and on the rest. What is your reaction? Turn with me to the great resurrection passage of 1 Corinthians 15. This is where Paul really gets deep into the whole concept of resurrection. But I want all of us to leave with a a really clear understanding that we will, just like Christ has been raised, your body will be raised. You will have a beautiful, glorified body. So those who die before he returns will be raised, and those alive when Jesus returns They will be changed. They will be glorified. But 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those... Also, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul says that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then frankly, we have all believed a great lie. That millions upon millions of people have believed a great lie that Jesus has actually raised. From the dead. And he says very clearly that as people who would believe such a lie, we are to be pitied. But then a really sad truth, beyond even being pitied, is that we are still dead in our sins. And what could be worse news than being dead in our sins? So if Christ has not been raised, you've all believed in a horrific lie, and you are all still dead in your sins. But he has come. Turn over to verse 50. He has truly come. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable man puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the imperishable, the immortal, the eternal soul, they will inherit the kingdom of God. And we will all be changed, joined forever in eternity with a a glorified, beautiful, no aches and pains, no sin, no death body. A body that has no chance of any of those things. And Paul says, thanks be to God for all of this. Thanks be to God for the victory that he has given to all of those who believe in Christ because of what Christ has done. And this future resurrection has practical ramifications. So if you're wondering to yourself, man, okay, so the whole spooky idea that there's going to be some sort of future resurrection, how does that have any bearing on my life? How does that have any meaning for me right today? Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that for the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, the gospel of Christ is what makes all of this possible. It's the gospel that has made all of this very real and very true, that Jesus Christ has come. We celebrate this in a few weeks, that he has come truly, fully God and fully man, living on earth, fully obeying His Father, fully obeying the Scriptures and even fulfilling them, and then living that perfect life and dying on behalf 
of those who were imperfect, who are imperfect, who cannot do the right thing, who cannot obey all of God's laws. But he came and he lived and he obeyed all of that for us, fulfilled all of it on our behalf. And he goes to the cross and he hangs there bearing our guilt and our shame, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, the wrath that you and I are due. Friends, it doesn't matter, great sins or little sins. It all brings us to that final destination. It all brings us to hell, of being in deservance of hell. But Christ has come, and if you trust in Him, and you believe on Him, that He has died for you, then He has borne God's wrath on your behalf, and He has given you His righteousness. So you no longer are bound to living in sin. You are free now. You are free to love God, to obey God, and to live righteously, knowing that it is He who has forgiven you in your totality of all of your sins, and that He has given you His own robes, and He has wrapped you up in them. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing that he has not only taken your sin and borne it, but he has also given you righteousness that is alien to you, that you do not deserve to have. Jesus said in John chapter 11, where we heard read earlier for us, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is come into the world. Friends, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That Jesus Christ has been raised. And that means something very explicitly to all of us. That to believe in Christ is to believe in Him as the resurrected one, the Son of God, the Christ who has come, and to do all of the things that I had just mentioned in regard to the gospel. Thanks be to God. He is the God of the living. And like the patriarchs, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our bodies, they will die here on this earth. But one day, our glorified body and our soul will be reunited for all of eternity as a result of what Christ has done for us within the gospel.